Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Did that work? So we're really excited. Um, today, though, we are going to be considering uh, Matthew 13. Uh, Matthew is one of the four Gospels, um, presents sort of the story of Jesus' life. Um, we're going to be looking at a parable, sometimes known as the Pearl of Great Price. I'm going to call it the Precious Pearl. Our sermon is Grasping the Kingdom of Heaven. So, are we in focus, Henry? My clicker ain't doing it. Okay, now let's do something. There we go. Okay, great. Uh, Would you please stand as I read God's word to us? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Let's pray. Father God, would you give us a glorious picture of the kingdom of heaven today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, uh, before us today is a pretty short, punchy, easy to conceptualize parable. A parable is a story which Jesus would have used to teach about a topic that would have made sense to his followers, but it was actually intended a lot of times to confuse those who didn't want to listen to Jesus. So for most of us here who have faith in Jesus as the truth, we probably understand what this parable is trying to point at. The kingdom of heaven is as valuable as priceless treasure. Okay, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band back up. That's it. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Parables are fascinating, aren't they? Because they can pack so much meaning into just a short few verses, in our case just two. You can uncover it in layers kind of like an onion, so each time you look at it, you probably notice a different aspect of meaning of the parable. They're totally rich in meaning, right? Um, And Jesus is teaching what the kingdom of heaven is like. One of the very first statements that Jesus made publicly was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is clearly central to Jesus' mission on earth. The structure of this parable is a comparison, and more uh, specifically, a simile. The kingdom of heaven is like something, right? A simile is meant to help us understand traits that if you just described it, it wouldn't really stand out, it wouldn't have nearly as much meaning. So if Jesus just said, the kingdom of heaven is valuable, right? It just wouldn't mean nearly as much. You wouldn't remember it. It wouldn't be interesting, um, and it wouldn't have nearly as many layers of meaning as this mini-story does. And in this case, it's a comparison from the lesser to the greater. It's almost like the opposite of hyperbole or exaggeration. I don't think that Jesus thinks that the kingdom of heaven is worth the same amount as a pearl, hence the little scale there. I don't think that they're actually equal. In fact, the use of a simile means that we get to use our imagination a little bit today. We get to dream about the most valuable thing we can think of and then go a little bit further. And that's going to be important as we keep going. 
So the kingdom of heaven is like something, but what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, again, it's kind of plain to us in some sense, isn't it? I know we've probably all read this phrase lots and lots of times. It appears in Matthew's gospel 32 times just by itself. So if you've read Matthew's gospel, you know this phrase. It's easy to take for granted, right? Like that tree that's in your front yard, you know it's some kind of oak, but you don't really know anything more than that, even though you've lived in that house for a long time. Just because we've read it a lot doesn't mean we know a lot about it. It's not a simple concept. There's a complication even just with the tricky word of in the middle of the kingdom of heaven. Just right here, does the kingdom of heaven mean the kingdom which is found up in heaven? As though it's referring to where you go when you die? Does it mean the kingdom that is coming from heaven? Like it's the source? Is it defining the boundary of the kingdom of heaven? Like when we say the kingdom of Morocco or something like that? There are different ways to interpret that word of. How do we account for this? Well, we can use the Bible to explain the Bible. There's another place in the book of Matthew that actually helps a great deal. You might recognize it. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And one verse provides a helpful interpretation for us. Matthew 6.10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The coming of the kingdom, that first line, means that God's will is done in the same way on earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer teaches us that whatever we think the way God's, God wills things to be done in heaven, that's what we pray for them to be done on earth as well. So heaven, where, where God's throne is, is like the headwaters of the kingdom of heaven. And those waters flow downstream to the earth as well. That's helpful clarity as to what we mean about the kingdom of heaven. But even with that clarity, unfortunately, there isn't a super clear way to apply the doctrine of the kingdom of heaven because of how Christians live and behave in the world. Let's see if you can tell what I mean. Within the church, there's, there's kind of two camps in the way that you apply the kingdom of heaven, and they're both orthodox positions. They're both Christian positions, and you've probably sensed these things, actually, even in the way that you see Christians engaging with politics or different uh, concerns in our world. It's, it's not cause for separation. It's not cause for alarm. They're both Christian positions, so you don't need to fear, but it's good to be aware of them, and here they are. Some well-informed, gospel-believing, spirit-empowered Christians think the term kingdom applies to anything and everything that belongs to Jesus, which is everything, right? So, for instance, the government, our schools, our drinking water quality, race relationships, the arts, these are all subject to the reign of Jesus, aren't they? So they belong to the kingdom. This is the view that some people will call transformationalism, and the, the term makes sense because Jesus' resurrection means that all things, all things are being made new and are part of his kingdom. So we should seek to transform them on earth 
right? On earth as they are in heaven, under Jesus' authority. On the other hand, though, we have other well-informed, gospel-believing, spirit-empowered Christians that think the term kingdom applies much more tightly and exclusively to the spiritual realm. Or in other words, the kingdom is something that applies to Christians as the royal subjects of King Jesus. And this view can be called two kingdoms because they would assent that there is a kingdom. Yes, everything is under the reign of Jesus, is under the authority of Jesus. But there's a second sense that you kind of need to have faith to be a part of the kingdom, right? And who has faith in Jesus? Christians do. So only Christians are actually part of the kingdom. Not the government, not businesses, just the church of believers. So the end goal of the two kingdoms view is to make disciples, because that's how we grow the kingdom. You might see the way those things play out in current discourse within the church. And I'm not going to adjudicate these views. I think there's pros and cons to both views. Um, This is one of my favorite topics of conversation, so if you have questions, let's talk. Um, But I do want us to notice that, that Christians and even Presbyterians don't have a uniform application for the kingdom of heaven. This sermon today is, is not able to and is not even intended to reconcile these two viewpoints. Um, so at this point, uh, we're all lost. I'm afraid none of us have any idea what the kingdom of heaven is anymore. Uh, you walked in thinking you knew and now you don't. Um, I've uh, introduced more questions than answers, but fear not because we can start somewhere, Right? Today we're considering what Jesus himself thinks about the kingdom of heaven. And even though we can't comprehensively or exhaustively define the kingdom of heaven, we can certainly say true and relevant things about it. And that seems like a pretty good starting point, right? So what I would like to do the rest of my time this morning is to unfold this parable and grasp Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm going to do that by answering these three questions. Who's searching for pearls? Who is buying the pearl? And who is selling the pearl? Okay, so point one, who is searching for pearls? Well, it's kind of obvious in the parable, right? Uh, The merchant is searching for fine pearls. His goal, of course, is to make a living. He's a merchant, but he's likely to make a lot more than a living as well. The pearl trade of the ancient Near East, it goes back about 7,000 years, and pearls were, even then, a luxury good. They showcased wealth and elegance. Now, the entire pearl trade broke down in the Persian Gulf around the 1900s as oil became the the chief uh, driver of wealth. But before oil, it seems as though pearls were a real business. They could make you real money in trade. So think of him almost like a a jewelry salesperson um, or something like that in that category of of merchant. So this this merchant, he's he's not the type of guy that's going to be easily distracted by just some pretty thing, right? He's, He's been looking at fine pearls. He's been evaluating them for his entire life, right? He purveys these things and he turns a profit. He's no stranger to the beauty of an individual pearl, you might say. And even the beauty of the pearl is a little bit of a means to an end for him. It's to make a profit. 
But then what happens to him? At some point in his search for pearls that he can use in his trade, he, he comes across a singular pearl. It compels him to do something extreme. The great value, the preciousness of this one pearl causes him to forsake everything that he owns, his entire wealth, in order to obtain just this one pearl. So while he was searching for fine pearls, what he found was something far greater than what he was anticipating. And this brings us back to the question, if the kingdom of heaven is like this story, how are we supposed to understand this merchant? Who is the merchant compared to, right? Who is in search of fine pearls? Well, let me describe for you how the merchant is actually everybody. You are the merchant. It's you, it's me, it's, it's your neighbor, it's the person you've never met before, it's all of us, and here's why. Everybody is looking for something. Everybody desires something. We are a desiring species. We are defined by our quest. Everybody is out looking for something as valuable as a pearl. Maybe profits, maybe it's satisfaction, maybe it's fulfillment. Everyone I know speaks like Bono. You might recognize the song. I believe in the kingdom come. Then all the colors will bleed into one. Bleed into one. But yes, I'm still running. And then the chorus hits, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. All right, yeah, good karaoke moment there. Thank you. Everybody longs for things to be put right, don't they? Even if we believe in the kingdom come, like Bono just said, we're still anxious for it to be fulfilled at the return of Jesus. One other nice thing about a parable is that it's not exclusive to a particular context. It's a story, so it's much more universal than that. So it's actually appropriate that we insert ourselves into this particular parable in place of the merchant. You could substitute your own motivators. The merchant wanted fine pearls, which means he likely wanted to make a profit. So you might be motivated likewise by riches. Some are motivated by the desire to belong, to fit in, to be accepted, or to be loved by somebody for who you truly are. Some are motivated by a sense of achievement or a sense that that you matter to the world, that your existence is justified, that you're useful, that you've earned your place. That's what we are looking for. And this isn't a bad thing, by the way. Our friend the merchant, he isn't crazy because he was looking for profit. You aren't crazy for having deep motivators or longings as well. Bono might be crazy, I don't know. but, but I do want us to briefly reckon with the fact that all of our motivators, all of them, are at some level innate to our human existence. Certainly we look to fulfill them in all the wrong ways. That's what sin is, like through greed or making idols. But our motivators are innate to our human existence. When God made man in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it says he created man after his likeness. 
That means He created them full of purpose, full of dignity, full of will, full of a desire to make things right. And there's an aspect of every human longing that although it is marred by sin, it's actually a tremendously God-imaging longing. Or put differently, one cannot long for something without longing for it as the image of God. And I'm convinced that this truth and this parable has a unique weight in our evangelism. Because if a merchant who evaluates fine pearls as a living can still be surprised by a priceless pearl, then even a hardened sinner who has searched out their deepest longing in every imaginable sinful way can still be surprised by the greatness of the kingdom of heaven. Even my brother or sister who has lost all hope for a life free of addiction or from the darkness of depression or from loneliness can still be surprised by the greatness of the kingdom of heaven. St. Augustine wrote, Thou hast made us, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And if you believe that, then this is a huge, huge evangelistic call to action. Christians, you bear with you the hope that fulfills every human longing. Don't be afraid. Whenever you share the good news of Christ's death and resurrection, you are sharing that news with a fellow image bearer who has been designed to receive that hope. A person without Christ is not your adversary, right? They are just like you, the image of God. They have great dignity and purpose, just like you do. Walk that path with them. Learn the great purpose of their lives, because that's exactly where Christ can meet them to show himself worthy of praise. God will surprise them with the greatness of the kingdom of heaven, and he might even surprise you in the way that he surprises them with the greatness of the kingdom of heaven. But why buy the pearl? What's the goodness of the pearl? Can it really be that special? Well, the merchant's goal was profit, but not when he sees this invaluable object. I bet there's even a, a sense of surprise for him, uh, just thinking he's seen all types of pearls, but, but nothing like this before. Nothing but the object itself is gained. Right? When he purchases that, he has a pearl only. But that thing, the possession of it fulfills you in some interesting way that you can't even hardly describe. It has its own glory, and you find that you need nothing else other than that satisfaction. Let me explain this by an analogy for nerds. Uh, that's, that's maybe not nice. Maybe an analogy for music nerds. Doesn't really fix the problem. An analogy for music aficionados, but that is arrogant, so how about an analogy? We'll just go there. Um, a lot of folks use Spotify, right? Um, raise your hand if you still use CDs so that we can all shame you really quickly. All right. Way to go, CD users. Okay. Uh, Spotify is what all young people use. Um, 
Anyway, it's got a great music discovery tool. It'll show you new things. I think it's excellent. Um, some of you might be familiar with this. When you're listening to Spotify, it's bringing up something new that you've never heard before, and it just really hits you, right? And I don't mean like, oh, it's got a cool beat and you're kind of bopping along. I mean it really hits you. It's got this transcendent quality to it where you just get lost for a second and it captivates you. You put aside, maybe you were working or studying, right? And you put that aside for a minute and you replay the song. And then you replay it again and again. And each time its richness and its beauty just overwhelm you. Have you ever had that happen to you? Or maybe you're looking at a piece of art that can do the same thing. Well, I have a playlist uh, called Songs About Death, um, and there are three songs in there um, that I have an exceptionally difficult time listening to them without just weeping. And it's not even because they're sad. At least two of them are, are about the beauty of seeing Christ after we die. But the beauty is transfixing, and I can't get away from it. I don't think that that's altogether different from what the merchant experienced when he viewed that pearl. There's this characteristic of beauty that has stolen the attention of the merchant. And there's a certain type of beauty that has a way of doing this. And I don't think I'm the only one who thinks this way because C.S. Lewis talks about it in The Weight of Glory. He puts it in these terms. We do not want to... Sorry, it's kind of in the way. We do not want merely to see beauty, though. God knows even that, even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it. To receive it into ourselves. To bathe in it. To become part of it. You don't find the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. The beauty of the kingdom of heaven finds you. So again, I I wonder if this is the type of beauty that the merchant must have felt when he viewed this wonderful, precious pearl. It beckoned it, it beckoned him to pass into it and to be joined to it in some strange way. And when we talk about this, this type of overwhelming beauty in this type of language, and when we apply it not to pearls, but to the kingdom of heaven, this is what we call irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is a theological term. Perhaps you've heard it before. It's part of an acronym, a bigger acronym called TULIP. Here are the points. It's a doctrine about God's election of his people. And a lot of times people uh, miss the point of TULIP, I think. It, it seems kind of cold and mechanical. You can read the terms up there, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. That just sounds like a mechanism, right? It doesn't really, it doesn't really have any beauty to it by itself. But this parable demonstrates how irresistible grace is actually really glorious and really wonderful. Nobody is going to be saved to the kingdom of heaven against their will, right? They're going to want to be a part of it because they're going to see it as glorious. There's so much beauty to the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus in this parable, that you will readily forsake everything else to join into it. The kingdom of heaven is not mechanical. It's glorious. But there is the other side. 
Because in the parable, the, the merchant does sell everything in, in order to, to buy the pearl. So the question is, well, Christians, do you need to sell all your possessions in order to have the kingdom of heaven? Is that what this parable is telling us? It's a somewhat anxious question, too, because you might remember later on in Matthew, Jesus actually tells a rich man who comes and asks him this question to do exactly that, to sell all that he has and give it to the poor. And he walks away sad. Should I do what the merchant did in order to gain the kingdom of heaven? This leads to the last point. Who is selling the pearl? It's interesting, isn't it, that there, there must have been somebody who possessed this pearl and was willing to sell this pearl, and he kind of got a good deal, didn't he? He sold this priceless pearl for literally the entire wealth of a pearl merchant. Talk about the art of the deal, right? Talk about getting raked over the coals. My goodness. Seems like the merchant might have gotten taken advantage of. But thankfully, friends, you do not purchase the kingdom of heaven. The bargain is actually for the buyer, not the seller. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. In fact, it's even said in Isaiah, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And you know, even if you could purchase it, it, the, the cost would be way too high for you to purchase it on your own. So you'll have to receive it as a gift, right? Ephesians 2 makes it clear that salvation into the kingdom of heaven is a gift. So when Jesus told that rich man to sell all his possessions, it actually illustrates the exact point that I've made so far. It was not a marvelous joy for him to give up everything he had in order to possess the kingdom of heaven, was it? He was not surprised by the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. He thought the kingdom was about earning your way th through the law. He thought purchasing the kingdom of heaven was through good works, through obedience. And it's not true. The kingdom of heaven is a free gift. But it does have a cost. And you might remember in the beginning I said it would be important that this parable is a is a comparison from the lesser to the greater. And it applies to this point as well. The lesser comparison is that the merchant sold everything he had. The greater truth is that you need to die. You must die to the flesh and live to God. And this is precisely what Easter was all about. and was precisely the message that Bob preached from Romans chapter 6. So if you have more questions about that, please reference the, the sermon from last week on, on our website, newlifepca.org. I'll just direct you there. If you already heard that message, listen to it again. It's great. You must be buried with Christ in baptism into his death in order to inherit eternal life and be raised into the kingdom of heaven. Romans 6 puts it this way. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But there's an even greater thought that you have to keep in mind as well. Yes, you do need to die 
in your flesh in order to live in the kingdom of heaven. And that is costly. But the fact remains that Jesus thought that you were worth buying as well. Jesus paid much more than his life savings in order to obtain you as his own inheritance. He paid his own life, not through dying to the flesh, but through having his flesh torn and pierced as the payment of the cost of your sins. There was no cost that was too high for Jesus to pay to redeem you. Jesus was willing to pay it all to bring you into the kingdom of heaven. I'll close with another C.S. Lewis reference uh, from the same essay as before. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination. The examination meaning judgment. Shall find approval. Shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. You, Christian, are the precious pearl of the Lord. And His kingdom of heaven is worth every cost in order to join it and to be with Him. I'll invite the band forward now. We're going to close with the Lord's Prayer, which I'll say for us now. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.